John Bunyan, the author of the allegorical Pilgrim's Progress, also penned another work entitled Holy War. And in it, he illustrates the great fight of faith, the fight for the castle of man's soul. It is a fight in which Satan wages a fierce battle to set up his government in the heart of the believer. And this the believer must resist so that Christ should reign. Ever since the fall of man in the garden, there has been a struggle, a fight to control our hearts. And this fight continued in the first century in Galatia. The Apostle Paul recognized that there were false teachers whom scholars called Judaizers. They came from a Jewish background. They were Christians, but they believed that if one were to live the Christian life, they had to keep the Old Testament law alongside believing in Jesus. And Paul realized that this was a spiritual battle because the gospel that he proclaimed states that one is saved not by doing anything, not by keeping any commandment or law, but simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. These false teachers, however, had come and added the necessity of works, our works, to the work of Christ on the cross which saves. And so he has outlined for us in Galatians chapter 2, the very heart of the gospel, a gospel that says that God declares a sinner righteous, legally righteous in his sight, merely by faith, without the works of the law. That's the gospel that he is struggling to establish or re-establish amongst the Galatians. In chapter 3, he begins a major section in this, this letter, in which he now seeks to convince them that over against the gospel of the false teachers, which includes our works, he wants to convince them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is solely on the basis of grace, that we are saved by grace alone, by the favor of God alone. Now, how does he seek to convince them of this gospel of grace in chapter 3, 1 to 5? Well, first of all, he will appeal to their own experience of the Christian life. He will ask a fundamental question. question. How did you become Christians? Did you become Christians by what you did? Or did you become Christians by what Christ did? He will go on in chapter 3 to raise and to turn to another bit of evidence to support this gospel of grace which he proclaims. Not only does the evidence support the fact that they are saved by grace, but that scripture itself teaches us that we are saved by faith through the grace of God. And that this message then, that salvation comes by grace and not by our works, is not a, a novelty, it is not an invention of Paul. In fact, even the Old Testament scriptures themselves teach that we are saved by faith, by the grace of God. When you read the first five verses of 
chapter 3 of Galatians, you will find that there are staccato questions, rapid-fire questions that Paul poses to the Galatians. So he begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth from whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and who works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, these questions at least convey something of the emotive content of this paragraph. It is indeed Paul is riled up because of their departure from the gospel of grace for the false teachings of the Judaizers. But in these questions, as Paul poses them to the Galatians, there are fundamental facts and truths about the Christian life that emerge. And I want us to consider them as they are presented to us. May I suggest, first of all, that Paul would have us recognize that the proclamation of Christ crucified is the foundation of their Christian life. The proclamation of Christ crucified is the foundation of the Christian life. He appeals to their experience of the gospel that they heard. What is it? What message did Barnabas and Paul preach to the Galatians that resulted in their conversion? It was a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? J.B. Phillips has an interesting paraphrase of this verse. He, he renders the verse like this. He says, this is how we should understand the verb, verse. He says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who saw Jesus Christ the crucified so plainly, who has been casting a spell over you? Surely you cannot be so idiotic. Now, I, I think that he does well in getting to the heart of what Paul is saying. Paul calls them all foolish Galatians. Now, it's important to note that Paul is not suggesting that these people were deficient in terms of their IQ. He was not saying that they were slouches, intellectual slouches, that they did not have brains to think. When he calls them foolish, Paul is not then referring to their intellectual abilities, but rather to their lack of spiritual discernment. They were foolish in a spiritual sense. In fact, if you read Galatians, you will see that the argument at times is quite complex in Galatians, and that that is, at least, I think, some indication of his respect and regard for the intellectual abilities. No, in fact, Paul does something like what Jesus did. When he was on the road, the Emmaus road, with the two disciples, Jesus could rebuke them and call them foolish and slow of heart for not understanding and for not receiving the things that were predicted of him by the prophets. Now, Paul calls them foolish. And why are they foolish? They are foolish precisely because they have allowed the false teachers to bewitch them. Oh, foolish Galatians. 
Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? The term baskino, to bewitch, really literally means to give the evil eye, to cast a spell over a person. Now, we're not suggesting that Paul believed that you could actually cast a spell on someone, but it is a term that is used, to cast a spell. It really means to hypnotize, to mesmerize. And Paul is saying, who has mesmerized you, you foolish Galatians? Why have you allowed yourselves to be mesmerized by these false teachers? Why have you allowed them to seduce you? So that you have backed away from and you have abandoned this gospel of grace, this gospel of salvation which comes by faith in Christ alone. Why have you been mesmerized by the teachings of these false teachers? He then goes on in this question, this rhetorical question, to outline the character of the gospel that he proclaimed when he arrived in Galatia. First of all, he speaks of the substance of the gospel as Jesus Christ. Notice again in chapter 3 verse 1. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed? The Apostle Paul, the, the substance of his gospel and of his proclamation was Jesus Christ. Someone wrote that Paul's entire universe revolved around Christ. And that, that, that reflected a seismic shift in the thinking of the Apostle Paul. Because prior to the Damascus road, Paul believed that Jesus Christ was a false messiah, an upstart, a charlatan, someone who he detested. But when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, or in his own language in chapter 1, when, when, when the Son of God was revealed in him, when God gave him clarity about Christ, Paul came to realize that everything revolved around Jesus. He came to recognize that Jesus Christ was not only the perfect man, but that he was the perfect God. There is an, an amazing statement Paul makes about Christ and his divinity in the book of Romans and chapter 9, in the opening verses of Romans chapter 9, as he talks about the privileges that he enjoyed and his nation enjoyed as the people of God. He says, for I would wish, or I could wish that my, I myself were a curse for Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He is deeply concerned about his own people. To whom, he says, pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And then he says this, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. He's saying that Jesus Christ came physically from the Jews. That's a fact that we know. But that this Christ is overall the eternally blessed God. He could tell the Colossians that in Christ all the fullness of divinity dwells. Paul says he came then to Galatia and he proclaimed Jesus Christ as the substance of his message. 
a Christ who is God himself. And it is important that we understand and underline that Jesus Christ was not only perfect man, but perfect God. Because it is only because he is God himself that he could have rendered to God the Father a perfect and an infinite sacrifice for our sins. And it is only because Jesus Christ is God why he is worthy of worship. If, we, if Christ were only a perfect man and we were to worship him, we would be all idolaters. And so Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ as no one else, no other, no less than God, blessed God, who is over all forever. He also tells us in verse 1 something of the manner of his proclamation, not only the substance of his proclamation, which is Jesus Christ, but the manner of his proclamation. He tells them in this question that when he came and when they proclaimed, they proclaimed before them, before their eyes, the Galatians' eyes, Christ, and he was clearly portrayed among them. Prographo, clearly portrayed, simply means to placard. When Paul went to Galatia, he placarded Christ. He did not speak in a corner. He was not speaking in harsh stones. He painted a very bold verbal picture. He raised up a metaphorical billboard to Christ in the province of Galatia. He proclaimed Christ. We see the nature then or the manner of his proclamation as placarding Christ, raising him up before them. And the heart of the message that he proclaimed is Christ crucified. Because he proclaimed Christ, he proclaimed him publicly as Christ crucified. And this verb crucified, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, occurs in the perfect tense. And what that means is that Paul did not merely proclaim Christ or the historical details of the crucifixion, but he proclaimed Christ who is crucified as a permanent reality. Not that he meant that Christ was still on the cross, but that the significance of his death continued permanently. Christ is the crucified one. Christ is the one, in other words, whose death brought about salvation. It is, it is by his crucifixion, it is by his death upon the cross that our sins have been removed. It is in the message of Christ crucified that Paul proclaims salvation for Jews and Gentiles. That is the cross of God was, or the cross of Christ was, was God's wisdom and power and grace to save the Galatians did not become Christians by hearing a message about how hard they were to work to earn salvation. They heard a message about salvation that has been earned by Jesus at the cross. And so Paul is saying, if you turn back and go back to law as a means of salvation, you are denying the very gospel message that you have heard in your own experience, that in the cross there is salvation. The cross is God's power to save. So not only Paul tells them that the proclamation of the cross of Christ is the foundation of their Christian life, he will go on then in verse 2 to tell them that the reception of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
by faith marks the commencement of their Christian life. How did they become Christians? How did they practically experience salvation? Well, they heard the gospel. Christ died for sinners. Christ died on the cross to save. That was what Paul preached. He placarded before them. But how did they become Christians? They received the Spirit. And so Paul asked the second question in verse 2. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now this is the question. This is the most important question. You know that because of the lead up to asking the question. This only I want to know from you. In other words, I want you to tell me one thing. Because if you answer this question correctly, it will demolish the entirety of the argument of the false teachers. So answer me this one question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, that is works done in accordance with the law of the Old Testament, or did you receive the Spirit by faith? And he describes that here, by the hearing of faith, or, or, the, or that faith that comes up after one has heard the gospel message. How did you receive it? What Paul is saying, hypothetically, there is only one of two ways that you can receive the Spirit. And to receive the Spirit is actually to be converted. There's only one of two ways. One can either receive the Spirit, at least potentially, by the works of the law, by doing good works to please God, or by the hearing of faith, that is by hearing and believing in the gospel. Paul, in asking this question, rhetorically, intends that they were to come to the conclusion that they became Christians by doing no good works, but by believing the gospel. That's how they became Christians, they simply believed. You see, for the Apostle Paul, this is a central issue. How did you become Christians? How did you receive the Spirit? In fact, in verse 5, the question there, though worded differently, is actually saying the same thing. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and, the, and, the work, and, and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What Paul would have them recognize, that the reception of the Spirit is the sine qua non, the indispensable element in conversion. That is, that is, no person can become a Christian unless he or she has received the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who identifies us as children of God, as belonging to God. So, in, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14, Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given us by God. And then he goes on and says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 12 to 14. The gift of the spirit marks out an individual as a Christian. Paul could not have said this any plainer in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 where he says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. John, in 1 John chapter 4 verse 13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. 
Now Paul says, therefore, when you became a Christian, you became a Christian because you received the Spirit. But how did you receive the Spirit? Did you work for him? Did you keep the law to receive him? Or was it through the hearing of faith, by hearing the gospel and believing it? It is by the hearing of faith. This Spirit is the one who saves us. Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who, who tells us and imparts to us God's love for us. Paul speaks of this same Spirit who saves us not only as giving us God's love, but it is a Spirit who seals us. In writing to the Ephesians in chapter 1 in verse 13 and 14, he tells us that, he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That is, when we became a Christian, the Spirit of God came and dwelt within us. God gave him to us. He gives us something of the love of God. He's the one who seals us. He is the guarantee of our future resurrection, of our future inheritance. God has given to him to us as a, an araban, Paul says. That is an initial down payment as an installment and it is he who keeps the believer saved to the end in writing to the Romans Paul says in Romans 8 verse 23 he says not only that but, he, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption of the redemption of our bodies the Holy Spirit has been given to us as the first fruit as the initial part of a harvest in other words God has given him to us to remind us that there is more to come they received the Spirit and they were converted and so Paul is saying, why is it that you are now turning away from the gospel of grace? That you are justified, legally rendered righteous by God on the basis of faith alone. Why are you then turning to the Lord for salvation when your own experience teaches that you heard the gospel and that God, having believed in Christ, God gave you the spirit, the spirit who saves you, the spirit who seals you, the spirit who imparts to you the love of God. Two points being made. First, that the Christian life, the foundation of the Christian life, lies in the proclamation of Christ crucified. And secondly, that the reception of the Christian life is marked by the Holy Spirit who comes to the believer. But Paul makes a third point in the third question that he asked. And that is that the progression in the Christian life depends upon the work of the Spirit and faith in Christ. So he asked them in verse 3, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul then is moving slightly away from how they entered the Christian life, that is by faith and by the Spirit, to now how they live out the Christian life. You see, these, these Galatians were told by the false teachers that you had to keep the law to be saved. And, and one of the things you had to do is that you had to be circumcised if you want to be saved. But they also said that if you are to make progress in the Christian life, you have to keep on keeping, you keep on um, obeying, adhering to the Old Testament law. That's what's going to get you to heaven eventually. And Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun the Christian life in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? What Paul is saying 
that the way we begin the Christian life is the way we must live the Christian life and it's the way we must end the Christian life. In other words, if we begun the Christian life by faith in Christ and by the Spirit, we must live the Christian life by faith in Christ, we must live it by dependence upon the Spirit, and we must not seek to live it by our own works. Have you begun in the Spirit? Paul understands that they are Christians because they've begun the Christian life. But they ought not to be saying, now Lord, thank you for bringing me by faith into the Christian life. But we can take it from here now. We, we can do this on our, by ourselves. We don't really need your help anymore. And that's exactly what the Galatians were suggesting. By going to the teaching of the false teachers, they were saying to God, we thank you for faith that has gotten us somewhere, at least in salvation, but we, we, we have got this. We have, we, we, we've got this. We can do this. We can keep the law. And we'll mature, we'll make progress. And Paul says, no, the way you began is the way you must live and end the Christian life by faith and by the Spirit of God. He then, in, the, in verse 4, reminds them that if they were to retreat to the law, to keep the law as a means of salvation, they would be de- denying uh, the work of Christ. And moreover, they would be saying that the sufferings that they endured when they became Christian was of no use was for no reason, was vain. And secondly, he then in verse 5 returns to this whole matter of how they receive the Spirit and how they experience his powerful working in miracles among them. Did they receive it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Paul would have them understand that it is by faith that God has supplied to them the work of the Holy Spirit. A colleague of mine recently told a group of us who met at his home that when he first moved into his house, a man came up to him, he was outside and came up to him and, and told him that years before, he actually lived in the same house. And a fellow went into great details and described in great details features about the house that was not known to this friend of ours. And then he pointed to a sunroom at the front of the house and said, I built it. I built it. There are a few things, you know, that we enjoy in life more than to take credit for us, for our accomplishments. You know, there's a reason why when you go to Walmart and other department stores, they have kits to do it yourself. Because we take great pleasure in being able to build things and plant things and achieve things. And one of the reasons that the Galatians were so mesmerized by these false teachers who taught them that they must live the Christian life by keeping the law. It is because by so doing, they could claim some credit for their salvation. And Paul would tell them, I want you to look at your own experience. You did not work your way into God's favor. You were saved by grace. That temptation... To take credit for salvation still is one that dogs us even today. And how then do we as Christians remain grace-dependent people? How do we do that? May I suggest three ways that we are to do that if we are to remain grace-dependent people? First of all, we must make up our minds once and for all that our works are inadequate. 
we must come to the conclusion about the inadequacy of our works, that all of our efforts to work our way, to worm our way in the favor of God will not get us anywhere. Because the Bible has told us on ample occasions that our works are filthy rags in the sight of God. That the very best that you and I can produce will never impress God. We may impress others and we may impress ourselves, but one thing we can never do is to impress God by our good works. Our good works are nauseating. They are rejected as utterly useless. They will never save us. We must come to a conclusion, and any person who is saved must declare bankruptcy in the sight of God. That every person who has been saved is a person who has come before God and say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. You can't be saved unless you know your unworthiness, that you do not deserve salvation, and that you look to Jesus Christ for salvation and the work he performs. How do you live as grace-dependent people, you first understand the inadequacy of your own works and your trust in Christ. But if we are to live as these grace-dependent people, something that the Galatians were not doing, we must keep our eyes fixed upon the finality of Christ and him crucified. One of Satan's greatest ploys is to get us to abandon the cross to lose sight of its importance. And if we do not forget it, we relegate it in the background as something of very little consequence to our daily, daily lives. He might bring us distractions, bewitch us by fine-tuned arguments. He may bring doubts and questions in our minds, but all of this is geared to one purpose and one purpose alone, that we might deviate from the gospel of the grace of God revealed in the cross of Christ. He wants us to abandon Christ crucified. My dear friends, let us be very clear that Paul was concerned about the Corinthians. He says that he feared that just like the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so they would be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The work of Satan is real, and what he seeks to do is to turn us away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Forgetting the cross is the first step in backsliding. And retaining the truth of the cross that Christ died for our sins is the antidote to all false teaching and all false living. If we are to be grace-dependent people, we must look at the cross, at what Jesus did. We must be mesmerized, not by the spell of false teachings, but we must be mesmerized by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you see, in the cross, we see our salvation. The cross points downwards and reminds us of the tremendous step that our Lord Jesus Christ took in degradation to deliver us from our sins. It tells us that Christ took a great step. 
He descended even into hell itself. Not literally, but the cross itself was the experience of hell for us. He bore the wrath of God. The cross points outward to show the infinite length. It shows us the magnitude, the infinite magnitude of the love of Christ. You see, as he was stretched out, it, it tells us that he died because of love for us. That it was love that drove him to the cross. It was love that kept him pinned to the cross. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lays down his life for his friends. And the cross points upwards to remind us that the great goal of Christ going to the cross is to lift us up to heaven. Not just to have us escape hell, but to be in heaven with our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be very, very clear that if we are to live grace-dependent lives, we must indeed fix our eyes on the finality of Christ and on the cross. But thirdly, we must trust in Christ and particularly in the sufficiency of the Spirit if we are to live the Christian life and live a grace-dependent life. Nathaniel Hawthorne was an excellent writer and he wrote a short story called The Birthmark. And in The Birthmark, it tells of a scientist, a devoted scientist, Alimer, a man who was so devoted, one would think he was married to, to science. But he met a young woman and fell in love, Georgina. And so he was also married to science and married to Georgina. And one day, he's looking at Georgina and he notices that she has a birthmark on one of her cheeks. And whereas other people thought that the birthmark was part of her charm, he thought of it as an imperfection. An imperfection that had to be erased. He convinced her that he was able to make her perfect. He could get rid of it by science and he could make her perfect. She wasn't at all convinced at first, but he kept at it. And after a while, he convinced her. He decided he was going to make a concoction that she would drink. And if she did so, she would be perfect. And so one day he made the concoction. He gave it to Georgina and Georgina drank it. And do you know what? Surprise of surprise. The birthmark began to fade. But she died. The concoction killed her. It reminds us, you see, that we cannot by our ability create or arrive at perfection. We cannot create perfection in others and we certainly cannot create perfection in ourselves. How do we live the Christian life? We live it the way we began it, by the Spirit of God. You see, God has given us His Holy Spirit. And his spirit grants us all the resources that we need. It is he who Paul tells us who helps us in our weaknesses. Likewise, the spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. 
but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be authored. In Romans 8 verse 26. It is the Spirit by which we put to death the deeds of the flesh, our pride, our lust, our jealousy, our bitterness. It's by the Spirit that we make progress in the life of sanctification. We develop in love or in humility or in godliness or in righteousness. It is a Spirit that God gives to us to be our resident counselor, to encourage us. I will send to you another comforter. It is a Spirit who leads us into truth. And a sign that a person is maturing and being and growing according to the Spirit is that person begins to love truth and continues to love the truth of the Word. Thy Word is truth. The Spirit who lives in us leads us to truth. And there is no man or woman who grows in the Christian life who can do so apart from the Spirit. And the sign that you are growing in the Spirit is that you're becoming more submissive to the Word of God and to the will of God. But the Christian life, from first to last, is by grace. We entered it by faith and by the Spirit. We live it out in the strength and the energy the Spirit gives. And we end it one day by the work of the Spirit. And the reason it is so, it is because God will never share his glory with us. We will never be able to get to heaven and say, you know what, Lord? You did 50% of the work and I did my 50. And I'm here because I pulled myself up by my moral bootstraps. I got there. Because I work for it, I earned it. There is no man or woman who will be able to boast in heaven about what they did. We will give praise to God for eternity, for great things that he has done. Salvation is of God. And if you want to know this salvation, you must turn from your sins. You must trust in Jesus Christ because he has done it all. And you must live this Christian life depending upon God's spirit. And depending upon the grace that he gives, that you may live it for his glory. May God so help you that you live a grace-dependent life, a life of faith, and a life lived in and through the Spirit of God for Jesus' sake. Amen.